20 to 23. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would speak to us today. Uh, Lord, you know the details of every one of our lives, and you know everything that went on this past week, and you know the state of our hearts and our minds as we've come here to worship you this morning. You know what is weighing us down. You know what is distracting us. You know what is even irritating us. And Father, we ask that you would take your living word, and by the power of your Spirit, speak your word into each and every one of our hearts. Knock down the idols and the sins that we hold on to. Open our eyes to see Jesus with his ever-renewed uh, beauty. And help us to long for Christ even more. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Well, who here uh, remembers floppy disks? <laughs> yes, yeah, some of you. Anybody still have any floppy disks? There we go. I was trying to find some for the kids' message, and my parents thought they did, uh, but they couldn't find any. So I'll remember that next time. I'll, <laughs> I will call on you uh, next time I need some. Now, when I was really young, we had five and a quarter inch floppy disks, which were actually floppy. And then several years later, they came out with the three and a half inch floppy disks, which held, uh, I think, double of what the bigger ones held, a whopping 1.44 megabytes. Now, if you're wondering how much that is, uh, two of them were required to install my favorite video game at that time, which was Police Quest. Anyone ever play that? Okay, a couple, yeah. And they have like six of them, I think, now. Uh, today, for those of you who don't know what Police Quest is, one floppy disk will hold the top quarter of one picture on your iPhone. So you just need a stack of four of them in order to share a photo with somebody. Now imagine that you started a new job and you'd been out of the workforce for a while, maybe even a few decades. And so you're kind of nervous, but you're excited to get back into work. And you show up at your first day on the job and you get to your workspace and you open up your backpack and you start unloading piles of new floppy disks and arrange them on your, uh, your desk or your workspace. And people's kind of looking at you oddly. And eventually someone comes up to you and says, hey, uh, you know, computers don't have floppy drives anymore. And you're like, don't worry, I know that. I did my research. That's why I bought a USB floppy drive off Amazon. Right? It's a ridiculous picture of you on your first day of work and you've just edited this file. And now you're waiting to insert, say, disk number eight to finish transferring it to the floppy disk so you can give it to a coworker to look at. It's a silly picture, but it's a similar picture to what Paul gives us in our passage of people who in the end are bringing out floppy disks in a world of high-speed wireless connections. And Paul is telling you that you have been freed from the floppy. You have something better. So why do you keep buying floppy disks every time they go on sale? Uh, we're, through the book, we're working through the book of Colossians right now in a, a series titled Jesus 
is enough. Now, we always doubt that. We always think that we need to bring a little floppy, couple floppy disks to Jesus because we're not sure if he actually is enough. And we actually think that a couple 1.44 megabyte floppy disks might actually impress him. But is it really going to make a difference? And here's what I want you to remember this morning. Jesus changes you from the inside out. Jesus changes you from the inside out. We're just going to look at it with two points. First, old ways, and then old rules. So first, an old way. It would be very easy to lump uh, this passage with last week's passage. If you remember, it, they, they talk really about the same theme, and it was a bit difficult to not write the same sermon twice. But I, I think this message is so important for us uh, that because we fall into the same trap as the Colossians do. We think that we can add something to Christ's work to kind of raise our standing before God. And so I thought it would be helpful for us to spend two weeks looking at these themes. And last week we saw how all of the, the rules and the regulations that a religion can impose on its people are a shadow of the reality that is found in Christ. I compared it to dealing with sin in your life by like mowing down the weeds in your yard every time they pop up so that things look good on the inside, but right below the good-looking grass are a bunch of weed roots that are thriving. And you can never remove the roots by simply mowing things down. And God looks at the heart. God looks at the roots. He actually cares more about the root than what others can see from the outside. Your life can look perfect from the outside, and yet your heart can be corrupt. And only God can remove the root of sin. Only God can change what needs to be most changed about you. And so how, though, do we think that God will be, you know, we think, okay, if everything looks good on the outside, well, that'll be good enough. So how do we mow down those weeds of sin in our life? Well, we create rules about what we want to do. And Paul gives us several examples in verse 12. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, right? If you're a Christian, you can't drink these sort of drinks or eat this sort of food or do this sort of thing. But our passage expands on that and says that Paul is saying that these things aren't just about maintaining external appearances but not getting to the heart. But actually, that way of dealing with the sin in your life belongs to a foregone age. They're like bringing out floppy disks today to transfer your photo collection. This is what he's getting at in verse 20. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Why are you bringing out floppy disks when you have high-speed Wi-Fi now? And I want us to take a little bit of time to unpack what Paul is says here so that we can understand the rest of the passage. And one of the key difficulties is what Paul means by elemental spiritual forces. And there's a lot of different ideas of what this means, but I think, as is usually the case, looking at Scripture itself is the best way to understand what Paul means. And so what is translated as elemental spiritual forces is actually just one word in the original Greek. And, and sometimes it's used to refer to basic spiritual principles, like in Hebrews 5.12. By this time, you ought to be teachers, but instead you need someone to teach you the elementary truths, same word, of God's word all over again. Or it can refer to the basic elements or building blocks of creation, 2 Peter 3.10. 
But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar and the elements, same word, will be destroyed by fire. But every time Paul uses this word, he seems to have something more specific in mind. Uh, the most helpful passage is from Galatians 4, 1 to 5, where Paul contrasts how the Jews lived and related to God in the Old Testament with how we, as people on this side of Christ, live and relate to God. And it's a bit of a longer passage, but, but listen, because it's really key for understanding our passage. Paul writes, what I am saying is that as long as an heir is under age, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to gar a guardian and trustee until a time set by his father. So Paul is giving this example of if someone is the heir to a large fortune, well, you don't just sign over millions of dollars to them when they're six years old, but usually that money is held in a trust fund, right? There are trustees that have regulations so that that money is doled out periodically and it can't be all squandered by a six-year-old. He goes on, so also when we were underage, we were unslave, in slavery under the, same word, elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption to sonship. So he's saying that there was an aspect of believers in the Old Testament were like underage kids. They were minors that, that needed additional rules and regulations to kind of help keep them from going, uh, you know, outside of the box, from squandering what they have in God. But now, he says, you are no longer like a young child or even like a slave. You are a full-grown son who has full authority and rights to everything that God has entrusted to you. And if you go back to following a bunch of rules, it's like trying to live like a six-year-old when you're a 30-year-old. It won't work well. It's not a good way to live. And Paul seems to be referring to many of the Jewish religious laws and cultural practices. Their dietary laws, what they would eat, what they wouldn't eat, uh, clean and unclean foods, uh, their religious holidays and the rules around those, uh, their, uh, the act of circumcision and other markers that marked them as Jewish. And Paul is saying that those practices were like rules that you would put in place when you have young kids. Don't eat this. Don't touch that. Keep your hands out of the, the electrical socket, whatever it might be. But when your child gets older, you don't tell them all those same rules, right? Like, make sure you don't touch the stove when it's on. Although sometimes, for those of you that have had teenagers or have teenagers, you probably wonder, maybe I do need to give my teenagers a few more explicit rules every once in a while. But eventually, they grow out of that, right? But when Christ came... It was like a coming-of-age ceremony where a, a child turns 18 or maybe better, 21, where God's people are released from all of those kind of rules to keep them safe, and they enjoy a new freedom, a new responsibility. So he's saying Christians are no longer treated like slaves or young children, but as heirs of God. And what leads to this change? What leads to that turning of 21 for the Christian? Well, Galatians 4, 5 tells us, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. So what leads to that maturing of the Christian is Christ's work. Notice it doesn't say that, you know what, everyone's got to follow a bunch of rules for a while, 
and then they can graduate to some more freedom. It doesn't say that when you become a Christian, well, it's kind of like, you know, you're a baby Christian, so you need a bunch of rules about what you can or can't do, but then as you mature, then you can have freedom. No, it's quite the opposite. Paul is saying that the moment you become a Christian, you have a status before God as a true heir, a, a son, someone who is inheriting the estate of God. Not because of what you've done, but because in that moment, you have put your trust in the one who has done it all. Why? Because Christ has brought you to maturity through his life, death, and resurrection. And so what then is key for the Colossians' spiritual growth? Is it them following a bunch of rules and being very strict about what they do with their life? Or is it them learning to receive and rest on Jesus more? Well, it's the latter, right? And so then the same thing for us. What is the key for you maturing in Christ? Is it following a bunch of rules? Or is it learning to receive and rest on Christ all the more? It's the latter. When I was young, one of my jobs, actually through most of my uh, under 18 years, was doing computer work at my dad's company. And whenever they got a new computer, I would go into the office and I would, for a while, install Novell's Office Suite, which I think was even before WordPerfect. And it was something like a stack of 26 floppy disks, right? And I would get paid to sit there and put in disk number one, and you'd hear all this kind of you know, weird like churning sound, and then a prompt would pop up and say, now insert disk number two. Pop that one out, put in number two, wait, and do that all the way through these 26 floppy disks as they transferred, you know, what now is transferred in a few milliseconds. And took a couple hours back then. And is that how you are approaching your Christian life? That you think, here's a stack of all these things that I need to do if I want to be filled with Christ. Here's these things, all this stuff that I better not do if I want to have the fullness of Christ. Another Bible study, another way to serve, another growth goal, another book to read, another thing that I'm going to give up. So much of it depends on the heart. These aren't bad things, but what is difficult is these things can so easily become distractions from Christ. You can spend your whole life filling up floppy disks with all the things that you've done and all the things that you've given up to follow God, and guess what? If that's what you're focused on, is how many floppy disks you filled up, you will still be so far behind that brand new Christian who finally realizes Jesus is enough and in their weakness falls into Christ's arms. And that moment is something that you cannot be contained in a floppy disk. In that moment, you as a brand new Christian receive a maturity that a life of filling up floppies will never approach. Because all the work that Jesus has done his perfect life, his substitutionary death, his resurrection into heavenly life, all of Jesus' work in that moment when you look in faith to Christ, all of his work is instantly downloaded into your life. And so how are you approaching your Christianity? Are you wrapped up in all these things that you do or don't do? Or maybe it's the opposite, like we looked at last week. Are you continually feeling judged 
because of the things that you aren't doing or because you don't feel like you're doing as much as this person or that person. You think, well, how could God love me? And what is so sinister about this approach to our faith is that you're spending a lot of time thinking about God. You're spending a lot of time thinking about what God likes and doesn't like. So you think you're on the right track. How can I be doing the wrong thing? I'm spending so much time thinking about God. But it's like you're obsessing over God's shadow when his substance, Christ himself, is standing right behind you and saying, just turn around and come to me and I will give you rest. And this brings us to our second point, old rules. Verse 21, such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. Again, it's a little bit difficult to understand what exactly Paul means, but I think he's getting at this idea that Rules just have a temporary effect. Rules, in the end, don't change your heart. They can bring some good change. They can bring some temporary good. But it is not true and lasting change. It's similar to so many diets, right? That if a diet is just about a list of all the foods you can't eat, you'll probably be a very miserable person, right? Because all you'll be thinking about is what I can't eat. To be successful, it so often is about changing your mindset, right? Changing your heart, changing your cravings to align to something more healthy. And if we bring it, it's similar here. If we bring in what we know about the Colossian situation, these teachers were coming and saying, yeah, you guys are, you know, baby Christians, but if you want to be big Christians, well, you need Jesus, plus you need to follow all these things that look very similar to what the Jews had done for many centuries. And then God will really love you. But Paul is kind of sarcastically telling them here, right, do you really think These folks hold the key to eternal life when the core of their teaching is wrapped up in stuff that has the shelf life of fresh bread. Like, think of it this way. Do you really think the key to fixing everything in your life is drinking coconut water instead of tap water? Like, maybe it could provide some benefits. But do you really think that that is what's going to fix your marriage or fix your life because you switched to 100% coconut water diet? No, of course not. And Paul is saying, why are you wrapped up in all these things that can bring maybe little, good, little bits of changes but cannot transform your heart? And Paul shows why these rules are so tempting for us to get trapped in. Verse 23, these rules seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and severe bodily discipline. When people are are following, probably every one of us knows folks like this, who follow a very strict lifestyle that requires a lot of self-sacrifice, we naturally kind of respect that. It gets our attention because it's so different from how we naturally live our life. If someone, whether it's someone who goes and, say, lives in a remote cabin, disconnected from all modern technology, or just someone, maybe a coworker who gives up all coffee or a certain type of food, you, you kind of respect that dedication. And people who do those things are very quick to tell you all the benefits in their life from doing that. Man, since I've given up this thing, all these great things have happened in my life. And we can be impressed because you're like, man, I don't know if I could give up coffee, but I also don't love that afternoon crash I get. Maybe, maybe there is something to this. I don't like how crammed my life is with constant news and social media and all the stress of the busyness of our life, maybe my life would be better if I just sold everything and go live on a remote farm in Idaho. Strong devotion, 
pious self-denial, severe bodily discipline. These can be good things. There's a place for them in the Christian life. But the order matters because these things are also really good at working your way apart from a dependence upon God. You know what those character qualities are really great for? Strong strong devotion, pious self-denial, severe bodily discipline. They are great for someone who is determined to transfer their entire photo collection on floppy disks. It works great for that, but will it really change the heart? These are external solutions to heart problems. And the end of verse 23 tells us they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Now today we don't have people going around telling us that, well, you really need to follow the Jewish dietary laws and ceremonies if you want to have a great relationship with God. But we're no less susceptible to those same temptations. What are the rules of the world that we might be tempted to follow today? Well, remember, Paul is referring to a lot of Jewish ceremonial and cultural practices. Some of them had grown in addition to Scripture, but actually a good bulk of them were things that had been originally given by God to the Israelites. And what that means is we can take even things in Scripture, and if we don't understand them correctly or apply them correctly, we can turn them into worldly rules. You can take good things given by God and actually turn them into things that are working your way away from God. We could say that any time that you think some sort of external action is key to a fulfilling life with God, you are submitting to the rules of this world. And so most obviously, it's things like what you can eat or drink, what you can't eat or drink. If you make someone's worthiness before God based on their dietary practices, you are submitting to the rules of this world. Now, one caveat with that. Sometimes you might give up something voluntarily because it is good for you. For some of you, giving up alcohol is a good decision because you know where that might lead you. Or maybe it's giving up a certain type of food because you have a dependency on them and can get addicted to those things. And doing those things can help our spiritual growth. It is, in one sense, a type of fasting, that you are removing this thing from your life and redirecting that passion and energy and hunger towards God. But when you start to think that thing is essential to your relationship with God, that's when it goes wrong. It's fine to say give up alcohol, but the moment you think that any serious Christian needs to give up alcohol, now you're making a worldly rule. Or the moment that you start to rank people and their spiritual standing ahead of, you know, based on what they do or don't do, or that you think, well, I do this, so it puts me ahead of this person who doesn't take this as seriously as I do. That is likely a stumbling block in your own spiritual growth. It's keeping you from complete dependence on the grace of Christ. When you start thinking that some external practice or some thing of strong self-devotion or pious self-denial is what raises you up spiritually above other people is the moment that you whip out the USB floppy drive and say, well, look what else I can do. 
what, what are the things, did you look at your own life, what things do you tend to use to rank yourself spiritually? What things do you look at when you're comparing your life to other people's life to see, you know, where do I fall out and how I'm doing compared to them? Either in how you're doing better than them, because look what I'm doing, or how you're doing worse than them. I'm not doing as much as them. Every time you start to do that, you are taking your eyes off Jesus. Herman Bovink describes this human condition so powerfully, of this paradox in, in, in all of us. He says, in this consists the greatness and miserableness of man. He longs for truth and is false by nature. He yearns for rest, yet throws himself from one diversion upon another. He pants for permanent and eternal bliss and seizes on the pleasure of the moment. He seeks for God and loses himself in the creature. He forsakes the fountain of living waters and hews out broken cisterns that can hold no water. He is a hungry man who dreams that he has eaten, and when he awakes, he finds that his soul is empty. Doesn't that describe so many of our lives? Like, Where are you trying to take these broken shards of water pots and scoop out water to feed your soul from these broken vessels? Where are you trying to fill your stomach with dreams? And do you wonder why every morning you wake up so empty, still unfulfilled? And there is something that is so much better for us Christians. Back to the very beginning of our passage, verse 20. You have died with Christ. And this language draws us back to verse 11 in chapter 2. In Christ you were also circumcised, not with a circumcision performed by hands, uh, but one that was not performed by human hands. He's referring to that Jewish practice of essentially what was symbolically cutting away the sin. And what he says, Christ has cut away, not some external piece, but has actually cut away the part of your heart where is the root of sin lies. And your whole self was ruled by the flesh, but it was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. Now there's a lot of stuff in there. Here's what this means. When you have that simple childlike faith in Jesus. Jesus, I'm a sinner. Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I'm tired of trying and failing. That faith, even if it just feels like a tiny little ember in a campfire about to go out, that little ember of faith connects you to the very life of God. And it is so strong even though from your perspective it looks so weak, because it is resting on the one who is all-powerful. And then when you are connected to the life of God, it means that Jesus' story becomes your story. So that 2,000 years ago, when Christ was living his perfect life, and loving his enemies, and sacrificing for those who hated him, and cared for the outcast and the oppressed, he was living that perfect life with you in his arms so that every bit of his perfection became your perfection. When he was dying on a cross, the death of a forsaken criminal and sinner, he was dying with you in his arms, so that your sin, your failure, your addiction, 
died on that day on Calvary. And when he was raised, he was raised with you in his arms so that your old self and your failures and even the sins that you are going to struggle with tomorrow from God's perspective were left in the grave 2,000 years ago and you are a new person. And now as Christ lives that resurrection life, he lives with you in his arms so that though your feet are still planted on this world of sin and suffering, your soul has been planted in heaven. And that heavenly power is now coursing through your soul and working its way out through your body so that you are being transformed from the inside out into something bright and beautiful, something that looks a lot like Jesus. And if that is true, why do you keep pulling out floppy disks and think I can add to that? We can't. He has done it all. And how does that reality then change the day-to-day details of your life? We have to come back next week, and we'll talk about that. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would give us an overwhelming sense of the power of Christ in us. Give us a sense that we have actually died to this world and the rules of this world and all the things that hinder us and encumber us and tangle up our hearts and our minds and our bodies and show us that the power of Christ has actually cut us from those things so that we are firmly planted in heaven right now and that the sins that we struggle with, the addictions that beat us up, the ways that we fail over and over again, those things are becoming more and more a shadow of our real life as Christ pulls us up into him. Father, help us to see that Jesus is enough and to have that joy and that freedom, that burden being lifted off our backs, transform our lives so that we would show the beauty of Christ in this world. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.